Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I will be talking about the best movie of 2021, which I hope is winning this year's Oscar, Paolo Sorrentino's The Hand of God, Estata la Mano di Dio. I'm a big fan of Sorrentino. I think he's the preeminent director in Italy and the man who best keeps up the Italian tradition in cinema. And of course, since it's Oscar season, I like to remind everyone that Italians are the most Oscar-nominated cinema. Going back to the late 40s to Vittorio De Sica, Hollywood was somehow charmed by the urgency, the passion, and the sophistication, both cinematographically and thematically, intellectually, of the new Italian cinema. And Sorrentino is the latest representative of that achievement. Now, he's, of course, already won an Oscar about 10 years back with La Grande Bellezza, which uh, was very much of attempt to remind the world, and especially Italy, of Fellini, of this reflection on Italian society and the problem of modernity, of faith and science and individualism and facing up to nihilism, and uh, was a great success. So was, of course, his HBO series, The Young Pope, a fairy tale that speaks to many hearts because it's about an American pope whose reactionary politics restored the church to her erstwhile splendor. So, uh, yeah, you can see why people love that one, too. It amazes, it shocks, and it makes people think that there's something in Italy that, again, speaks. The 90s, 2000s, not a great time. Somehow Italian cinema flagged. But there's some reason to believe that now there is something, again, to be reckoned with. The Hand of God is just delightful. You see why it seems like in Italy movies just show up in this splendid, splendid way. Somehow the cinematography works. Sorrentino has changed a lot in the style and, and, and in his cinematographer for this movie to capture more of the 80s Napoli of his youth. And yet it looks like an incredibly polished movie. Gorgeous to look at. It's one scene after another that moves effortlessly from the comical moments in ordinary life and the heartbreaks in people's lives to scenes of theological importance and all sorts of fragments that give you an artist's reflection on this matter, the hand of God. What is it a miracle? What does it mean for something to happen? This thing like, is this a miracle? Am I experiencing a miracle? How could you be uncertain about such an event? Both the ordinary and the transcendent moments in our lives are brought together in a very discreet, in a very elegant way. I have to stop here so that I can stop with all these superlatives and this uh, great praise for the movie, but uh, I love it and I hope you will love it too. Now, before we talk to the movie, Sebastian, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. It's good to have an Italian talk about Italian cinema, and uh, it's always good to talk with one's good friends. So please introduce yourself to our American audience here and then tell us about how you fell in love with Sorrentino. Well, thank you, Titus, and thanks for having me on your podcast, and thank you, audience, for listening. Introducing myself, that's that's a tricky one. I am I'm a writer, I guess. First and foremost, I'm an analyst. And first of all, my formation is a classical one. The Lyceum, as it's called here, Greek and Latin. And then I moved on to study philosophy, international relations. And, and then, yeah, this job took me a bit everywhere in the world, from the United States to Australia, working for governments mostly, uh, a brief moment with the United Nations. And then finally, I managed after 12 years overseas to snatch Europe again and move to Paris, where I pursued my real passion, which is writing writing for this very famous artist, Parisian-based painters. 
And then, you know, for the past year or so, optorto COVID, as I say, I got a job back in Italy where I liaise between uh, a part of the church, let's put it this way, I can't be too open, and science, like try to bring the two back together. So yeah, this is what I do. And in the meantime, I'm also writing again articles and essays, mostly for conservative Italian news outlets, which there's an explosion. Finally, there's an explosion bag of a pride in being, if not conservative, at least traditionalist you know we're in a weird country we have we are the country with the most things to preserve and conservare conservum so protect and until recently no one was trying to do this but now there's all these new movements and news outlet and let's just say i got back after 12 years home at the right time and i obviously love movies it's the only thing i might not love more than books but it's it's close it's, it's also a time for this side, right? That the Sorrentino's movies are about Italy. They're trying to recover the national memory, among other things. He makes a cinema that tells you, look at the great men of politics and, and also the men who seem great, but are really screwed up. The, the great drama of the country, the great problems. It's not a narcissistic cinema. It is not frivolous. It's not limited to the ridiculous complaints of people who don't have anything in their lives anymore and have some kind of oppression drama. It's a cinema of grand ambitions. And as you're saying, it's conservative. That is, it's trying to conserve Italy, to make all that beauty and all that history come alive for a, a new yeah. generation. It's amazing. I mean, I'm fascinated by him. I have to say, I got to know him from his very first movie, actually his second, but the first one where he really became Sorrentino, his unique style, which I'm not sure exists in English, in the Anglosphere, which is uh, Le Conseguenze dell'Amore, The Consequences of Love. And that was the start of his collaboration, which is unsung hero, who I think we owe 30 or 40% of Sorrentino's success to Luca Bigazzi, the DOP. I mean, Luca Bigazzi is just incredible. He's like unbelievably good. And uh, Sorrentino amazed me always because officially he's definitely not conservative or even on the right side of the aisle, but he somehow he manages to be the most profound voice for a certain tradition and Italian style that we seem to have forgotten. I mean, look at the young Pope. He never said he's an atheist. I don't think he's an atheist. I think he's a believer in his own way, but certainly he is no friend of clericalism, as we call it. And yet the most incredible depiction of a Pope, the Pope we would all want, was made by someone who barely goes to church, I think. And he's so profound. His books also are excellent. I don't know whether you, you if his books translate in English. They're all quirky and weird, but they always have that something that makes you go, ah, this is Sorrentino. Beauty would be my term for him. I think it was Roger Scruton, I'm sure it was Roger Scruton, who said, without beauty, we ain't going to go anywhere. And ugliness is, is the price modern society pays for ignorance. It's the most obvious thing you can see. And Sorrentino just brought it back in some magical way. And the hand of God is, I have to say, a tribute not only to Italy and to Naples, but to the 80s, the last time Italy was truly great, I think. Yeah, I guess we should tell our audience Sorrentino is not just the writer-director. He is also a novelist. He also writes all sorts of things. Is very much alive in the literature, in the conversation in Italy, not just on screen. That's also somehow important for Italian cinema. It has a deep connection to letters, to novels, to reflection on interiority and getting to the fundamental problems. Indeed, Sorrentino, just because he's alive to Italy, he is alive to this thing that hits you if you pay attention wherever you go. This mm -hmm. is a country marked by faith and by the church in a way, of course, no other has been. It's just everywhere around you. And now and then something strikes that makes you think, how did this happen? Why is it 
so? Why is it not so anymore? And will it be so again? You'd have to be almost crazy as an artist not to be sensitive to that, not to notice, to dwell on it, and to wonder how could this be best expressed. Yeah. You know, Napoli in the 80s, the opening of the movie, just I'll briefly say what the story is for the sake of our audience. The Hand of God is an autobiography, and as autobiography goes, is almost without any sense of self-flattery or self-importance. It is not narcissistic. He doesn't care about himself, as it were. He cares about what the city was like, what the family was like, what Italy was like. That's what he is looking at. It's an autobiography from which the protagonist is largely absent. He's a young man and he is mostly passive. It's a vision of the artist that is not flattering, but I think it's very true. Artists in a way are passive. They are not making stuff. They are, first of all, receiving it. They are sensitive to the atmosphere. They are sensitive to the world where their conception of the beautiful is formed. So this kid, Fabio, he lives in Napoli in a fairly middle-class family. That's a banker. Fabietto. In Italian, it's important because it, and then at one point the movie goes, you're not Fabietto anymore, you're Fabio now. It's very important initiation moment by Capuano. Exactly. And and that's what the whole movie is about. The first half is comical and he is Fabietto Fabio. And in the second half of the movie, it ain't funny anymore. And he becomes Fabio. It's a story, the name of ancient Roman heroes, Fabius Maximus, great family. Then, you know, you have to be an adult now. You have to be a man now. You have to face up to death. You have to face up to the question, what will you do with yourself? But of course, for Sorrentino, as I said, this is autobiographical. The movie is about how he lost his parents at the age of 17. And from that moment in the movie, it's no longer these beautiful scenes of the family and their crazy, crazy characters. It's the emptiness. That love and that comedy of the first half is something we all experienced or at least wished to have in family, this promise that somehow life comes out of this nurturing care and then it's all gone. Before you can ask yourself, what did mom and dad want to teach me? How was I supposed to go through life? What did they, what they want for me? It's all gone. You can't have that anymore. And you have to ask yourself, what am I going to do with myself as a man? This combination of great love and great suffering is how Sorrentino arranges both the movie and articulates the question. What is it to be an artist? Why do we care about the beautiful? It must be that in some way it's because so much in life and in human nature is ugly. We are starved for the beautiful. We want to live in the element of the beautiful, in beautiful images, in beautiful words. But we know that's not all there is to it. Somehow the beautiful, it's urgency, like you're a teenager and you fall in love. Somewhere in the back of that experience is your sudden fear of death, your realization of your own mortality. You want this to be forever because you know all human things must pass. Eventually you will die. So there is great sensitivity. There is great drama to the movie largely separated into a comic first half that introduces you to the city, to Napoli in the 80s, and the coming of Maradona that makes the city, again, sort of political. They have a I was hero about to say, life. let's not forget the actual protagonist of the movie, La Mano de Dios. We should tell your audience, what, because soccer isn't really big there, why is such an event? What happened? So in the 80s, okay, it's not really a secret, Italy has always had a little bit of a problem with mafias and corruption, But no place was this more obvious than Naples, especially in the 80s. So it was very decadent. Naples had kind of lost its soul. And then this rumor started coming that the most prestigious, famous, a demigod of soccer players, there were just rumors for months that he might come to play for Naples, an historically poor team, but famously owned by a crook. 
Now, this started to become so legendary that it was also myth. like no one knew where this rumor started from, but it was common consensus that it wasn't true. Like, there's no way, Maradona. Like, to give the American audience, it's like, I don't know, to follow more Formula One, maybe. It's like Schumacher, you know, going to, to, to drive a Fiat, which he technically did, but it was a Ferrari. And then the news comes out, it's actually true. And Paolo Sorrentino is a young 16-year-old in love with soccer. His father is a banker and gets in the middle of the night this call from his own boss, says, we just signed the money transfer in order for Naples to acquire Maradona. And that's it. The movie just takes that path and Maradona saves Technically and practically saves Paolo Sorrentino's life, it turns out, because Sorrentino went and saw the hand of God, meaning Maradona, that game, while his parents were going for holiday skiing in their mountain house. And as we know, unfortunately, there's an accident with the fire and they basically die because something goes wrong. They breathe too much carbon dioxide and voila. And Sorrentino was always very, we basically found out about his story with this movie. He's one of these artists that tries really not to be in the spotlight. We knew very little about him. And this movie is sort of a catharsis. He's finally, in his own words, I heard an interview a few days ago, weeks ago, I got finally, I made peace with the death of my own parents and decided it's time basically to put my life in a movie so that I myself can deal with it. Because by his own admission, he tried to never think about it ever since. And this leads me to why Sorrentino's movie are so profound. I think it has to do with a gift that no one, very few people have because this modern society does not see it as a gift, but as a curse, which is he faced suffering at a very early age, especially knowledge of death. Now, if you think about it, our whole Western society is based upon three things. Consumerism, everyone that needs to be beautiful and young and rich and no suffering at all. There's no death. We ship out elderly people far away. So we never see these things. And uh, unfortunately, this makes a very shallow society. I don't want to be a stoic here, but I believe that having death as a constant reminder without any morbid meaning to it, just a true great friend. As the ancient Greeks used to say, death is technically your best friend. If you just keep it in you, you will live your life every day as your last which is Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and all, all those great folk. Now he had it. There's a great, great TED talk. The only time where he ever talked about himself. It was maybe the first or second TED talk in Italy. So I'm talking ages ago. And it's so funny to watch because he's such an introvert. He was stammering and stuttering. He's a goofball. But without <laughs> his nonsensical, and, and he's so shy. But he started saying, listen, maybe the only advantage I have over anyone else is that I spend a lot of time alone. I was lucky enough to live in a time where being annoyato, um, where being bored was a good thing. Like your parents left you. Yeah, just be bored. Go play. Use your imagination. While right now we keep our kids all busy. God forbid they have one minute to think about themselves. So he spent his childhood in suffering a bit, a lot, alone. And thus you become an introvert. And by becoming an introvert, you become a great artist in general. Fellini, very similar, just in a different way. You know, he, it's not very well known, but he suffered tremendously over the loss of his newborn son. The son, Federichino, died a few months, you know, after he was born. And they kept very quiet about it. But it obviously, you can see how his movies change. So, yeah, the greatness of Sorrentino, he combines a few things. He was brought up in an Italy that still produced great artists because of the previous world. The previous world was, wasn't that much connected. Naples was a city-state on its own, like Rome, by the way, or Florence or Venice. There were still great readers and great writers, and it was this great atmosphere. And 
there was the famous Prima Repubblica, the first republic. So the old system of governance with great men, not like these joke politicians that just tweet all the time. So the combination of all these factors just made the last living Italian, he's not even a director, he's an auteur. And uh, yeah, I think the hand of God after the great beauty is his best. I know this is a big statement. I mean, Il Divo masterpiece, but very confined to the Italian public because it talks about Andreotti. But in the hand of God, there's a tenderness. There's a coming to grasp with your own past. And it's the first time I can see Sorrentino in his own interview a bit moved about it because, again, he's super shy. Yes, Sorrentino is an artist. He is not a performer. He is not a guy who shows off, who shows up in public much. You learn about him by reading and by watching. That's how he wants to present himself. That's where he excels. And a lot of that indeed is because he transforms his suffering into art. Suffering into art. This should be printed on every t-shirt. It's either that or Europe is going to hell. These are the options. Well, I think we're close. Plenty of talking. (laughs) Sorry. So you could say that suffering is guaranteed, whether you get art and the spiritual strength it builds is the only thing that's in question. But the suffering is guaranteed. And with him, yes, you see that the great tenderness he shows is, so to speak, for his audience and for young Italians. You are stuck in an age of pathetic mediocrities that do not even speak to the longings of your soul, much less guide you to any kind of greatness. But uh, look at the world around you. Take this existential disclosure of boredom, of, of a world that seems to have nothing to offer to you. It's a cipher. It's obscure and obvious at the same time. There's a big nothing there. Accept that suffering, dwell on it, and develop art. You should not be treating your life with pills and therapy. You should treat it with art. Was it... Woody Allen, in a great line that he gives to Gertrude Stein in Midnight in Paris, where she goes, the job you know, is to find meaning into, into all the suffering, something like that, or in, 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 in a meaningless world. So yeah, that's what he did. You know, the, the movies also, because it's a, a Bildungsroman, this thing goes back at least to Goethe or perhaps earlier than that. Somehow, once Europeans modernized, they were in the danger of losing their souls because education was not real anymore. And so the Bildungsroman appeared to teach young men, young women at that, how to deal with becoming a teenager, that is to say, becoming aware that there is an inside inside of you, a secret world of hopes and fears, of embarrassments, of things you might not say, of things that you only reveal by trying to conceal them, such as when we blush, spontaneous action, you blush. Yet that shows there is a secret inside of you that you are trying to hide. You cannot simply be like a child. Something comes in your eyes, comes out of your mouth. See it, say it. No, now you realize that there are secrets. There are things you cannot say. You realize that there are forces in the cosmos that are greater than you. Things come over you without you wanting them to. Things overpower or overwhelm you. And for the hand of God, he chose to focus on the beautiful, what it means to be seized by the beautiful, that you have an instant disclosure of a being. Just the opening of the movie to show what it means for a movie to be an education, a Bildungsroman, to teach you how to think about life, how to go through adolescence with a view to your humanity, your future. We come in over the sea, of course, to Napoli. 
you see the city standing over against the sea. That is the human situation. The sea is nature in its shapelessness, formlessness, chaos, something you cannot predict or control. But the surface of the water is, of course, always shimmers. And the camera moves like the spirit of God over the face of the waters. And then you get to the city. And once you get there, you get this stunning view of Italy, the past and the future, and this crazy, crazy world. It's Piazza del Plebiscito, the mid-19th century. It's the origins of modern politics in Italy, the coming of the, the new world, the kingdom. And there is, of course, the neoclassical Basilica there. It's San Francesco de Paola, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and now the big piazza in front of it, it's a parking lot. This is true. In the 70s, 80s, like that's what it was. it was a parking lot. You have the Republic or politics, the plebiscite, you have God, and, and, and the, there's a parking lot in there. That's life. You're in Napoli. The the great past of Italy is there. It's in plain sight, but also somehow nobody notices. That is the power of the beautiful. You notice suddenly fundamental things that otherwise you just go through life with a glaze over your eyes and you can't see. Well, don't get me started on conserving Italy. That's that's exactly what I was talking about. We have all these incredible sites. Well, Naples is historically badly managed, I should say, as is Rome, but that's off topic. It is, though, this incredible contrast between, see, in Naples, I always say, if you survive Naples, mates, you're, it's fine. You'll be fine in, from Angola to Ukraine at the moment, because Naples is where the still beating heart of true Italy is. Mind you, that city has been conquered by literally everyone, I guess, from the Spaniards, the Austrians, the French, the this, the that. But what Naples always did, it was never conquered. It's Naples that conquers the invaders. So you kind of become Neapolitan. And you can see this even in, in Viaggio in Italia by Goethe, uh, my journey to it. But I don't know what the English title is. What's amazing about Goethe's book, you know, we, we all know the story. A very young Goethe travels to Italy, takes him months, if not years. And from the north to the south, it's funny to read that book because in every city, village, he goes like, oh my God, this is the most beautiful place in the world. Then he travels a mile down south. Oh my God, no, this is the most beautiful place in the world. And then and so then he sees Rome and he goes nuts over Rome. And then, okay, I'm going to Rome, you know, you see Rome and die, something like that. And then he sees Naples and say, okay, that's it. And it's, that, unfortunately, it's true. It's very hard to be born in beauty and be able to appreciate it. And this is the whole point. We Italians, in a way, we are so, our lack of being born Italian is also a curse because we don't appreciate beauty anymore because we think it's obvious. Like I spent 12 years overseas and why, while I literally adored my time in the US, what a country, or Australia, or even France, but still it's not Italy. I don't want to sound arrogant here, but God blatantly favored Italy until a few years ago. I mean, maybe it's a few decades now that God is going like, oh, what are you doing, guys? But all kidding aside, what a mixture of culture, of good weather, lakes, mountains, food, the women, the Campari, the cocktails, the church, the beauty of the Latin mass. Italy is this, and we don't care. Some reason we make parking lots in that square, which is insanity. Now, what Sorrentino is very able to do, he points out the ugly and the beautiful, but it is the ugly that makes it kind of beautiful. For example, the second scene is as astonishing as the first. Just for you, for your audience, is this gorgeous woman, this lady, in this old palazzo. We, we're not sure what this palazzo is. I don't want to give too much away. But she's in this old, completely abandoned palazzo. And you can see in its ruin how beautiful it is still to this day. And that's a famous palazzo that no one really cares about in Naples because we don't have the money, obviously. Thanks, European Union. And this is what Sertin is able to do. He shows you how even in the most 
I'm not abandoned. It's like there's a beautiful German word, Weltschmerz. Even in the Weltschmerz of Italy, so all these past beauty, there's still the beauty of decay almost. And then, and then, yeah, there's the people of Naples. He gives a very folkloristic, on purpose, I guess, image of his own people. That old lady just blatantly eating that mozzarella. He could have spared us that image, but whatever. But I was amazed how accurately he depicted the most simple and yet beautiful of Italian families. And, you know, the sceneries they're in are typical of the low middle class. But in any other place in the world, to be able to afford that scenery, you've got to be not a millionaire, but close. So that's another thing of Italy. Even the most uh, simple among us are so surrounded by beauty that we don't realize it. And no one stops and says, oh, my God, I mean, just look at that ancient Roman wall that is now, you know, what I see from my window in this corner in Rome. And no one knows or even cares. So not to mention the fact that Roman streets are still perfectly fine and working. Well, my street down here, down the road is falling apart and it was built two years ago. So, yeah, I yeah. think this is the essence of his work. The ability to put modern Italy and old Italy together and still say to the youngsters and actually every Italian, remember your roots. If we forget who we are, what we were and what we can still be, then we're lost. You know, our Western culture, I don't want to quote Jordan Peterson here, but I will. If we lose the logos, we lose everything. We are. Again, how interesting is it? In every single movie, there's a little bit of church. Like Fellini, who famously was a bit of an esotericist, never really believed, but was a huge believer in, in a way. There's always the church. And the most beautiful shots are done by these two men. You can always see nuns everywhere in Sorrentino's movies or priests in Fellini's one. To also point out to your audience a very important factor. They're not from Rome. These two auteurs lived in Rome their whole life, but were not of Rome. So Antonioni, no, was it Antonioni? Anyway, I, or De Sica, I can't remember which one, told to Fellini, where do you see all these nuns and, and, and priests? That's not true. That's not Rome. And Fellini said, listen, I just see them all the time. And then a few weeks later, they called each other again and said, you know, I started to pay attention to what you told me. And it's true. Rome is actually filled with priests and nuns everywhere. But because I am from Rome, I don't see it. So if you come from the province, or Naples, and, and you go somewhere else, you see the little details that we don't see. And that's another one of his great talents. He shows you things that the average Italian doesn't notice anymore because we're too distracted from the goddamn phone to, you know, the latest news, the, the, the music uh, constantly in your ears. Um, we don't pay attention anymore. We don't want to get bored. We don't want to suffer. We, we're doing all the things that Sorrentino is trying to tell us. Do them a little bit because they might save your life eventually. And um, yeah, I couldn't speak more highly of that movie. It didn't do great at the Golden Globes, actually didn't do anything. But I still have hopes for the Oscars because it needs, it deserves, I want to dare even more recognition than the great beauty. It, this is his own life. And it's for the future, it's for young people. It needs this kind of attention for people to take it seriously. La Grande Belleza was so sophisticated that everybody was willing to love that one and praise it. With this one, it's a bit more difficult. People are not necessarily willing to say, yeah, this is what you need to do. You need to educate another generation. And who's going to do it? If artists don't do it, nobody is going to do it. It yeah. did very well in Italy. It was, the, you know, it was COVID. The world was going crazy. Sorrentino was making art. And uh, it was the biggest movie of its year. It uh, did very well in Venezia, of course, at the festival there. The young fellow playing Fabio, his artistic debut. There you see, you know, literally, Sorrentino gave this man a future. Funnily enough, 
okay, well, let's check whether this will be true in a few months. He's 17 or something, but he keeps repeating, listen, I just want to do that movie. I want to go back to school first, begin and finish university and eventually, you know, go back. But it was really, he just wanted to do that one movie. And he's so perfect for that role. He's shy. He's introvert. You can see it in interviews. He's Sorrentino, like Sorrentino used to be in the 80s. And he's got a little hunchback. No, absolutely incredible performance by this young actor. I, I hope he goes back into, to, I mean, he continues acting. Finish your studies first. I'm not saying you should pursue, uh, the, uh, but just once he finishes his study, I want to see him again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a very good idea to have an education first. Have some resources from which to draw your art before you try and wow Italy. But in Tony Servillo in the role of his father, you know, again, for the American audiences and the, in the English in general, Tony Servillo and Sorrentino are like Marcello Mastroianni to Fellini. And but this role was so much more intimate because you got to portray Sorrentino's father, which must have been I mean, I can't even imagine being in that set and having to recreate your life. It must be very introspective, you know, traveling work. And he's so beautiful, he's so charming. And when they died, I even teared up because you just felt so connected to the family. Typical ne Neapolitan kind of joker pranks the family. Very, very simple people. And yet so genuine and wise in their own way. So Tony Servillo's, again, I mean, it's Tony Servillo now, so it's needless to say, but what a performance. He's the actor carrying Italian cinema a few steps further. Yeah. Hopefully. But he always had these charming roles, like Jab Gambardella in The Great Beauty, or when he was... Um... I just saw him now playing Scarpetta in uh, this movie about Scarpetta and D'Annunzio, this, wow. the Vate and this Paradis, the high and the low, the tragic and the ridiculous I haven't seen it yet. Is it good? It's pretty good. You know, it wasn't Sorrentino, but it's pretty good. And watching Tony Servilio, all right, I am in. It's a very good performance. So I was charmed. And it reminded me of Hand of God because it again suggests that Italy, it's not Northern Italy, strangely enough, not where the industrial power comes from, the economy and the kingdom. Italy is actually Southern Italy. That's the national character. It's far more the people, far less the aristocracy, strangely enough, that carried things forward. And I think that goes with what you were saying, that somehow Italy is this mix of beautiful ruins, things that make you long for some greatness, but also break your heart. And on the other hand, the kind of innocence and childishness in the people, like with the Schisa family that uh, you see portrayed in Hand of God, people who whistle at each other over the phone to say, you know, I forgive you. It's very charming. It's very earnest. At the same time, it's playful. Somehow the national drama doesn't weigh on their shoulders. These people are going through life, so to speak, bequeathing something to their kids. This strange, playful character that ameliorates, to some extent, Italian passion and the despair it can induce. But they don't seem to know what country they are living in. And that's part of the joke that Fabio's father, played by Tony Servilio, he's a communist. So like, he can't believe in this nonsense about religion, but uh, he's a banker. <laughs> like, you're a communist banker. Very like, Italian. Italy. Very Italian. Very Italian. You know, you can't believe in God, but when Maradona comes over, you begin to think, wow, what a thing. There is a pride of the Italian man that he is a skeptical, cynical guy, like, you can't sucker me. Uh, I know these rich people and these institutions, they're all oppressing us. But in another way, any chance that Italian greatness seizes his attention, and all of a sudden he's as much in love with this phenomenon, making Napoli a city again. They have something to believe in, something to bring them together. He's as much caught in it as anybody else. The other communist in the movie is, is hilarious, like hates everything in Italy, presumably because the capitalists eventually won. But he says, like, if they don't bring uh, Maradona here, I will kill myself. Like one, kill myself. one last political act for this passionate dude. 
He must have been yeah, a really it's... political dude when he was young. He was just a really old, decrepit guy. And you see these contradictions between uh, these are communist athletes who are really desperate for something to believe in, for Napoli. And Sorrentino is very able to portray all of these contradictions that somehow make Italy what it is. And he shows that this is why the young are confused. The things you see around here, I know we're obsessed with the future, we've got to make something, we don't know quite know what, but like it'll be capitalism, it'll be democracy, whatever that is. But also there's this past all around you. The past itself is split between the Roman Empire and the Empire of the Church. There are always many confusing things and learning to notice that's what art is about and that's what art can contribute to society, as you were saying. Why Sorrentino so good at this? He's not Roman. He's from Napoli. He's eccentric. He doesn't have to have this pretense that comes from the worst part of the aristocracy, the pretense that you know everything, that you can learn nothing. How interesting is it about that aristocratic character Sorrentino puts in the movie? I love that lady. Like, it's obviously fallen nobility. And then there's that, you know, this is a movie about initiations. Death, love, but then also first sexual encounter. We live in a society where there's no more rights anymore. Not rights, GHT. And he go, he undergoes all three rides in that movie. And I found it what that old lady does for him in the moment of need, when he needs it the most, it's unbelievable. I found it such a touching in its, it, in its weirdness, because it's weird. Let's not, you know, hide that. But I find it such a touching moment that an elderly aristocratic woman does this for a young lost man who just had the worst things happen to him. And let's not say anything else. But it's a movie ultimately about the free initiation men need. Young men especially. And this is an, an, another interesting point. What will the younger generation make of it? Because, you know, we live in a society where, again, there's no initiation, right? We don't have an army service anymore. And everyone is was cheering about it. Like, I'm at 1985. I'm 36. And I was the last draft. After 85, no one was called anymore. And it saves your life. You know, at that age, at 18, you're obviously, we have a saying in Italy, if you're not a lefty when you're young, you're without a heart. If you're still a lefty when you're an adult, you're stupid, basically. So at that age, when you're 18 and there's rights and, oh, you know, the, no military service and fuck the system and all of that. But I had to do it. And looking back, along with my love for martial arts and structure and rigor, like I didn't know what sort of man I would become, but I can tell now these events for me and saluting the flag, you know, for a year. And at 5 a.m. and standing for something transcendent. That's the other word I would use for Sorrentino. He brings back the transcendent in an obsessed with imminence world. There's more to this than just this, 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 this the country. There's, you know, transcendent. There's God. In every frontier movie, there's God at some point. And then there's love. And in every Sorrentino, you've got a love story. I think that's what will make his movies eternal. You know, I can rewatch and rewatch his movies just in the background while I do other things. Like, first of all, for the photography and just ah, and the soundtrack. Let's not forget the soundtrack. Unbelievable array of music. And um, Sorrentino movies, you can just listen to while you do other things. And it's still amazing. And every time I notice a detail that, oh, I didn't I didn't notice that before or oh, that's why he did this. And his movies are all connected in a way. He's just trying to make this point. Remarkable how familiar you become with these things, how you want them to be always there, somehow by your side, constant companion. They're sometimes intense and even bizarre experiences, and yet they feel strangely familiar. He somehow suggests that these are depths of the human soul that we hide from ourselves. But in our hearts, we know this to be true. That's why you can accept it. Like when, once he has transformed into art, you can accept that it is so. 
And it comes, of course, with great difficulty. We live in a distracted world, and so somebody has to attract our attention, first of all. It has to concentrate your being in your perceptions for the duration of the movie. It has to take you away from the world, to Mm -hmm. surround you in beauty, so you can return to the world and take it more seriously, pay attention, because that is the power of the beautiful. It is somehow transcendent. Every beautiful thing is the beautiful as such. And it points out that there is a being disclosing itself to you that on the one hand, you are absolutely convinced that this is happening right now. And on the other hand, you sense there's something deeply elusive. That being is also hiding itself from you, not just disclosing itself to you. And therefore, that being human, you grow up, you're a teenager, you're supposed to become an adult, you're supposed to realize that this is for life your attempt through the beautiful to discover what it is to be human. Now you're sure that this is the task, but you also realize it's a task that will take all of your life. It is not a job. It's not a hobby. It's not one of these distracted, bored things people do. It's your entire life. It's everything you will always do. To have any opportunity to notice how difficult it is to be human and how tantalizing experience is, that's all you're about to find out something transcendent, but it hides itself. That's, I guess, why we are in love with art. That's why we want also to be familiar with it, to make our lives more beautiful, to be more sure that we actually are human. It's Mm -hmm. uh, of the essence of being human, that somehow we we take the fake stuff, the images, the fictive personalities, the characters we see in movies, we take them as more real than reality. Because in that case, we're sure there's something beautiful there. With us, I mean, there's a lot of accidents, there's a lot of harassment, there's a lot of nonsense going on, or there's a lot of waste of time, waste of talent. We can't love ourselves in the way in which we love something that is an object of art that's perfect in a way. And yet we need that to somehow return to ourselves. I suppose that's why it's especially addressed to young men, to a, a need for manliness and adulthood, to a need for art, and to make something of yourself before you can have anything to offer the world, to have anything to offer your country. Ooh. It's some strange combination of humility and ambition. You have to realize that you've gotten next to nothing now. But there's a world there that gives you promise you could become something, at least touch, like in the, the movie suggests you, you could be touched by greatness. Even a touch of that is going to transform your life. And so there's a great ambition there. Like Sorrentino, you can end up trying to be the poet of Italy, bring the people back to themselves, give as great an account as possible of a nation with such an astonishing past. Absolutely. I mean, you just reminded me of this quote whose name escapes me, who, who actually said it, a great French writer, and he was conversing with a friend and they were in Notre Dame. I'm talking late 18th century. And he asked, this famous writer whose name escapes me, how was it possible to build such magnificence? And the writer said, oh, it's such good quote, because back then people had convictions. Now, nowadays we only have opinions and it takes more than opinions to build cathedrals. This would be for me, the summary of our modern times. You know, just going slightly off topic, in Italy especially, it's a problem. Every politician is asked, oh, could you quickly give us your take on this event that just happened on you know, a tweet? said, no, we literally pay you to think things through, dear politician. Don't just give me your quick opinion. Just think about it. Wait half an hour, a few days, and then say something. But this fast, accelerating world where everything needs to be quick. And this, obviously, you can see it in also in the exterior world. Now, is it a coincidence? And now I'm, well, America has this a bit, or a lot. England has it. Italy has it especially. But every city after the 70s, when they started building all the suburbs, all the suburbs, without exceptions, are ugly. For a variety of reasons, they needed cheap material, cheap labor. They had to do them fast. But look what accelerating everything brought to us. No beauty at all. 
you know, it's absolutely stunning to me to realize what happens. Like back in the day, even the most simple of men, once he finished, he's waiting for the bus or the doctor's appointment. Once he finished reading his newspaper, he had nothing to do but just stay alone with his thoughts. Now, no matter how ignorant you are, that's self-introspection. That makes you think about stuff. Now, the minute you finished reading, assuming you're reading, you've got the iPhone, the Spotify, the music, the email, the this, that. you're never with your thoughts where you should be in the present. Now, I, I, I don't want to go all Zen and Tao here, but it's nothing that we should envy the, the Far East because what did Marcus Aurelius say at the Stoics? Logos ataraxia, stay with your own thoughts. So this is something we're just unwilling to do for a million reasons, which is now we can't get into. But Sorrentino keeps pointing to this. In all his movies, if you think if how slow they move, like uh, Jeb Gambardella when he walks through Rome at night because there's no noise at night and you can really take the city in. Yeah, every movie. Also Il Divo or Loro. Loro, I mean, Loro talks about Silvio Berlusconi, not exactly, I don't give personal opinions. He's a, he's a great man. But let's say he had some problems in Italy. <laughs> but even in that movie, you can still see how Silvio Berlusconi eventually realizes that it's in his few moments of absolute solitude that he had his biggest insights when all these courtiers, modern courtiers, were away and he was finally with his own thoughts and he had his best political ideas. And mind you, unfortunately, we have no difference in our Italian language between solitude and loneliness. Two very different things. I don't know who said it, Mark Twain, maybe? If you feel alone when you're alone, you're in bad company. And this is straight from Pascal when in, in his thoughts, in his diary, he wrote, the problem with the modern man, and he, he was writing in the 16th century, the problem with modern man is that he's unable to be alone with his thoughts in his room for even a few minutes. We're in 2022. This has gone out of control. And uh, I think I owe Sorrentino at least that much, if not the sheer beauty of his shots, just the ability through music and images. It's great company to have, not to mention the dialogues, of course. The dialogues is absolutely crazy at some points. They're nonsensical, but there's sense and nonsense. You know, it's like a, a Zen koan. You know, those, those riddles that the Zen masters give you seem to make no sense. And then, oh, I get it. You notice, yeah. you notice that things are absurd. You also have noticed that somehow we are trying to make sense. We surprise ourselves in, in a certain way. We are irrational, but when we become aware of it, then we begin to reason about ourselves uh, and, and admitting yeah. much in us, is that line? Much in us doesn't work. Do you remember that line in The Great Beauty? Now, the sudden setting is this gauche caviar terrace where they're just talking about all sorts of things. And there's this poet who never says one thing in the whole movie. And someone said, why does he never talk? Why doesn't he ever say anything? And Tony Servillo, Jeff Gambarella says, because he listens. Best line of the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, that's what like Randy Billets No one does anymore. That. Uh, this one is about staring, about looking at things. It's about learning to notice and therefore noticing that we are in deep, deep trouble. It's somehow it's a tragic comedy of civilization. All of this may be falling apart. But on the other hand, we might be able to sort it out to somehow make sense of what's happening to us if we look to experiences so common that have become almost invisible to us. Right? Like, What does Maradona mean for Napoli? It's a miracle. What does it mean that it's a miracle? Well, it means that they, they, they learn to hope again. Somehow it came as a rumor. He's coming. Maradona is coming. We're going to be winners. We're going to fight. How do you know? It's a rumor. Everybody says so, though. And that rumor somehow builds a power of conviction. They actually did win, uh, by the way. <laughs> yeah. 
And so uh, you get there a, a kind of big world vision of what a miracle is, what it means for people to begin to believe, to discover in themselves a certain need and a certain hope that they were not aware of before and come out of a kind of moral, intellectual laziness, lethargy. And somehow that's also what happens to the teenage protagonist. He also begins to believe. And that, uh, in, in a discreet way, it's a suggestion that there's something about modern thought is somehow to do with materialism and atheism that makes people into a new kind of barbarian, a barbarian that has no idea what's happening right in front of him. When, when Sorrentino shows you Napoli, you begin to realize that this is all about what the people believe. The reality mm -hmm. is tied up with their beliefs. Without their beliefs, there is no city. The city is not the streets and the houses. The city is not the economic relations or things like that. The city is the beliefs. This is what yeah. brings these people together. But somehow they've forgotten who they are. And they have to discover that again. And so they're in need of a miracle, but the miracle is somehow tied up with being human. That is, we try to make sense of things to understand to the best of our ability, but we realize we have limits. Our minds and our bodies have limits, and we somehow seek for something beyond that. That's what it means for it to be transcendent, to a personal miracle, that human beings are constituted not by a rationalist atheism, but by another kind of rationalism that is more poetic, that is aware of our beliefs, that we live through belief, and therefore we are always vulnerable to beauty, which is, it's an ambiguous phenomenon. You can be seduced and betrayed, but you can also, by beauty, learn the most wonderful things about being human. Beauty is inherently dangerous. It tends to tragedy, to say no more. It allows for great deception, uh, like the old aristocracy that had great splendor, but also great cruelty. Yeah. But somehow that's living for higher stakes than the ordinary life available now. And that's why people yearn for it. That's why the more we're stuck with a kind of life that bores us, the more we yearn for incredible beauty, the more we yearn for something that seems more real than reality, since our realities are pretty shabby. Well, the great line in the movie that the whole movie hinges upon one line, this great master eventually takes him under his arm and he says, Fabietto, why do you want to tell a story? Why do you want to make movies? Perché la realtà è scadente. Because reality is disappointing. And it is also not a coincidence that the very beginning of the movie starts with beauty personified. This gorgeous, gorgeous woman. You know, not a hint of makeup, just gorgeous in, in, in an Italian way. Uh, modern Sophia Loren. In the very first scene, a miracle happens to her. You know, you have to be Neapolitan to understand what happened because it seems in craziness. But in the first scene, a miracle happens to beauty personified. And yeah, you you nailed it. It's beauty and the transcendent in, in, in one movie. And also the realization that you can go wherever you want, but you will always come back home or you will always take home in your heart. Like the last scene, the minute he goes to fulfill his dream, the last scene is he takes a train to Rome. But what happens during the journey? There's a Walkman. It's the 80s. I love the whole 80s and bar. And he puts Pino Daniele, very famous song, Napoli, Naples is. So he's not even yet arrived in Rome. He hasn't even left almost Naples and he's already longing for his roots. And that's another trait of the great auteurs going into the world, but still never forgetting their, their origins. Do you actually know that the, 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 where they, they live in the movie is actually where he lived? They managed to shoot it in, in, in the very super simple, quite ugly suburb building. But that's his favorite place in the world. He, he got it again because he loves to write there in this tiny apartment from the 70s. Another weird modern thing. We are intensely nostalgic. Nostalgia can start when you're young. Reality is disappointing. What, what do we have? But looking back, I know, I know this is true for every generation. I think Woody Allen calls it Ozymandias Melancholia. Such a more beautiful world than just being depressed or melancholia.
Even words used to be better. But let's say you're a young man or woman in these modern crazy times and you have a Zinzuch. The Germans have the most beautiful words. You long for something, but you can't really put into words. It's something you never really live, but you see it. Like I have an Instagram page, which is anonymous about Italian politics, but only for a period of time, which is the first republic. It's the biggest in Italy now. I didn't want to, there's not my name. I didn't want to know it. It's me. It's the biggest in Italy. Tens of thousands of followers. But what was amazing to me to notice, I thought, I was amazed by the followers in general, the huge success it had. But I thought, okay, it's going to be old farts, like me or older, missing the, the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. You know what happened when I looked at the insights that Instagram gives you? The 20 to 25, 27-year-old kids, 90% of them. No, these young men, they have never lived that era. So when I asked in, you know, in my story, why do you follow this? I said, well, because modern times are so not depressing, disappointing. Modern politics is so disappointing that we want to understand, okay, how did we get to this? They looked back and we had giants back then. Giant, Andreotti, Craxi, you know, Reagan, Thatcher, and all the great names of the past. What do we have now? I think um, for an intelligent person, it's almost, you're almost obliged to look at the past, even just to get inspiration and do better in the future. Exactly. Somehow we're both deprived and deeply aware of our longing. We would like something more beautiful and more noble, nobler, just nobler. Sorrentino suggests, as you were saying about the, the scene with Luisa Ranieri, this incredibly beautiful woman, she's just this lady and she's sort of crazy, but she's also the Magdalene penitent. So it's, it's Italy. Everything is somehow tied up with the religious imagery. There's San Gennaro, the patron of Napoli, uh-huh. the Monacello, the little monk. The little All monk. Right. And that, that's the other thing. At the end, the boy is listening to a song about Napoli and he sees the little monk. Yeah. Belief will be with him for life. Somehow it's what it means to be Italian. I think if you notice these things, you can begin to see, well, why do you love this movie? What is it about it? It rewards attention and suggests that there is something to experience that educates, at least in art. If you dwell on experience, even suffering, even miserable experiences, even the mediocrity of our times, at least sends you by your contempt for it to something you would admire instead. And when an artist has your attention, he can promise you a reward for this. There will be an insight there. There will be something that tells you, I am sure in my heart that this beautiful thing matters. And he can explain to you why. But of course, you have to pay attention. You have to become sensitive. You have to focus and in a way to use your head. You got to think about these things. You got to notice some things. Then he will be able to reward you. But you have to think for yourself. You have to feel for yourself. And that's the artistic point that you cannot live in this consumerist world where your desires are prepackaged. You have to feel with your own heart. You have to think with your own head. And uh, a lot of that comes through suffering and perplexity. It does not come through comfort. So even the bizarre stuff in the movie, sometimes you have to be hit over the head to notice how troubling the human condition really is. If you want comfort, you cannot want art. If you want art, uh, you have to go through the bizarre experiences and the uncertainties. Yeah, yeah. We want to... Art, I, I, I can't remember who said it, but art must create discomfort. Science needs to prove, you know, comfort. And I, a comfort zone, well, art should do the opposite. That's why I think censoring art is, you know, it's happening in Italy. What's happening is terrible because stupidity is going wild. It used to be bad before, but now they, 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 they literally two days ago, they wanted to ban Dostoevsky from a university because of what's happening in Ukraine. Like, this is the exactly time where we should read more Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Chekhov. And I, I'm very worried about this because the minute you start censoring art, 
then you're at the brink of something really bad happening to civilization. I don't want to go back to the burning of books, but, and uh, there's so few movies right now that really want to, to reflect on your mortality. Like for the example, Woody Allen, who I keep quoting and whom I love, but he made a movie a year at least by his own admission to distract himself from death. And while he touches very deep themes, he never goes to the heart of it. He's not like Bergman, although he loves Bergman. Sorrentino instead always puts suffering in his movies. In a weird way, if you think about it, Wes Anderson, another great hero of mine, it's all about, it's all jolly and crazy. It's beautiful. But if you think about it, towards the middle or the end, there's always some you know, tragic event. Because Wes Anderson is actually a very, I mean, there, there were no doubts about it, to be honest. But he doesn't come across it. He's a very thoughtful man. He's very deep. He wonders about, there's a great interview with Charlie Rose 20 years ago. Where he said, listen, death is one of my great, not passions, that's not the right word, interests in life. Anyone who is interested in life should actually study death as a subject. It might save your life. Responsibility and the knowledge that we shall all die. So let's make the very best of every minute. Like, okay, I'm a, you know, Roman Catholic Christian. Death poses no threat to me. But for anyone else there, there's a great line in Nabokov. And he said, listen, life comes as a great surprise to all of us. I see no reason why death shouldn't be an even greater one. That's what I love. Sorrentino, he's so deeply aware of the human condition that you can come from a privileged background or the simplest one. You'll always feel at home with one of his movies. Youth. We haven't even mentioned youth yet. Not necessarily one of my favorite ones, but, you know, this is a true story. It didn't come out, probably international media, but he told Italian media, listen, the actual movie was called The uh, Chiaia, you know, being old. But the, 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 the PR people and the publicity, no, 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 you can't call it that. So in a stroke of genius, he called it the other way around. So the whole movie is about two elderly people, great friends, living the last years and discussing music and whatnot. But he could not call it what he intended to call it, which is death, because we don't want to look at it. Yeah, no, and no, ended sure. up with the ironic youth. Yeah. Oh, genius. You know, the title is even better than that. Like, I'm not sure if I would have gone. I, okay, personally, I, I, I still would have gone to watch it because it's me. But everyone else in Italy, oh, God, no, I... It, it would have actually been a, a tragic mistake. But calling it youth, stroke of genius. Yeah, Sorrentino. I mean, honestly, I'm already looking forward to the gossip for the new movie. But first, let's make sure he wins the Oscars. So Motion Picture Association, do the right thing. <laughs> Please. Uh, we want another Fellini. How many did Fellini get in the end? Five Oscars? Maybe I was I was actually four. counting this yesterday, but I but somehow I forget. I'm sorry. I think it started with uh, four or five. Abiria and the Strada, eight and a half. Amar Kord one as well. So I think and four, one for his career. So five and exactly. So uh, yeah, you're right. And uh, this guy's gotta be the next one. Sebastian, thank you for joining me. Thank you for the conversation and uh, absolute pleasure. The beginning of a Sorrentino series. We will trumpet the man's achievements. Pleasure to watch the movies. It's a pleasure to talk about them too. It's quite remarkable how much he offers you. What would be really interesting for your audience, Il Divo, because we can go into the politics of the 90s, 80s and 90s in Italy. It had a lot to do with the US as well. I think Il Divo should be next on your list of Sorrentino's series. Yeah, we have to, I think we'll have time to talk about a lot of them, but we certainly have to do that. All right, Sebastian, all the best. Meanwhile, weather the storm is our crazy times. Uh, not a bad moment to turn to beauty instead. So uh, all the best until next time. Well, as Hemingway said, that damn fine world and it's worth fighting for. 
Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to chat with you and your audience. God bless and talk soon, hopefully. All the best. Ciao.